0: Well, good morning again, and uh, welcome to Hawaii Kite Church. Um, <clears throat> if I don't hug you this morning, it's because I'm just getting over a little bit of the sniffles. Uh, so please excuse me if I uh, have to drink some water every now and then. Uh, This morning, uh, we are going to be opening up to Luke chapter 20, uh, continuing our study through the Gospel of Luke. You can find this on page 880 880 in the Bibles under your seats. Luke chapter 20, verses 41 through 47 will be our passage of study this morning. Again, it can be found on page 880, 880 in the Bibles under your seats. Luke chapter 20, verses 41 through 47 is our passage this morning. And it says this. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Now, in our passage this morning, we are going to learn that unless you get Jesus right, nothing else matters in this world. We must understand who he truly is and come to believe that he is the Son of God, God in the flesh, the Messiah, our Savior. For our eternal soul depends upon this. We have to get Jesus right. Because if we don't, our Christianity becomes a performance, an act, something we hide behind rather than our only hope to expose and to heal our sin. And I believe this is what Luke is going to teach us this morning. Now, for those of you who may, have not, may not have been with us over the past few weeks, uh, a little bit of context may help you better understand our passage this morning. Uh, we find Jesus here in Jerusalem during the last week of his life. He's only a few days away from being crucified. Now, this is very important for us to understand because it gives special emphasis to everything that Jesus is doing and saying. Now, if you only had a few days to live, what would you focus your attention on? What are the most important things to you that you would want to do and say? Well, in Jesus' case, we find him doing exactly what he has been doing for the entire, uh, entirety of his ministry. He's teaching and he's preaching the gospel Up to this point, for the past three years of his ministry, Jesus has been teaching the people with great power and authority about the kingdom of God and that he is their long awaited Messiah, the savior of the world. And he's been backing up this teaching with incredible miracles and acts of power and authority that no one had ever seen nor could refute. And although many of the Jews would believe in him and be saved, most of the Jewish religious leaders did not. In fact, they hated Jesus, and they wanted him dead. To them, Jesus was at best a mere human charlatan, and at worst, he was a servant of Satan. Either way, in their minds, he was leading the people astray. Wherever Jesus went, throngs of people clamored to see his great works and to hear him teach, all of which made the Jewish leaders hate him even more because they were extremely jealous of him. And to make matters worse, the Jewish leaders believed that Jesus was committing the ultimate act of blasphemy, for they knew that Jesus was claiming to be God's Son, equal with God, and indeed, God in the flesh, God incarnate. And this was too much for them. It's one thing to claim to be the Messiah, but it is an absolute madness and blasphemy to claim to be God. You see, the Jews believed that their Messiah was going to be merely a man. Granted, he would be a powerful man, a man equipped by God to do great things, to re-establish the kingdom of God on earth, and to make all of Israel's enemies a footstool under their feet. But he would be a man nonetheless, a human being. But along comes Jesus claiming to be God. I and the Father are one, Jesus said in John 10. And when you see me, you have seen the Father, he says in John 14. And when Jesus questions the religious leaders, why do you want to kill me? They say, it is not for good works that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you being a man, make yourself God. The religious leaders clearly understood what Jesus was saying about himself. And so as we've seen in Pastor Dan's sermons over the past several weeks, the Jewish leaders have been relentlessly and maliciously questioning Jesus, trying to trap him into saying something that they can use against him in order to put him to death. But they have been unsuccessful. Jesus continues to answer each and every question with such truth and clarity that the Jews are literally stunned into silence. As we heard at the end of last week's sermon, they no longer dared to ask him any questions. And now, in our passage this morning, we are going to see Jesus turning the tables on the Jewish religious leaders by posing a question to them that totally stumps them and at the same time proves that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the Son of God. Look again at verse 41. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son. Now, at first glance, you may be wondering, I don't get it, Dave. What does all of this mean? Well, to be honest, I had a page full of written-out text trying to explain this passage, but when I, when I read it to Katie last night, it was just too long, and it was confusing to both her and myself. But typical of my daughter Katie, her only response was, you made a lot of good points, Daddy. You know, every preacher needs a daughter like Katie. (laughs) So let me take Katie's advice and just focus on just a few main points. See, to understand the passage, we need to just understand a few things. The first is that the psalm that Jesus is quoting here is Psalm 110, which is commonly understood to be a prophecy concerning the coming Messiah. It's a messianic psalm that speaks of the future Messiah. The second point is that it was common knowledge that the Messiah would be from the lineage of David, that he would be a son of David. Everyone, especially the religious leaders, believed this. And the third thing, and I think this is the key to all of this, is that in Jesus' time and culture, fathers or patriarchs would never call their sons or their descendants Lord. Lord. It was unthinkable for a father to bow down and pay homage to his offspring. And this would be especially true if the patriarch in question was King David, the greatest of all of Israel's kings. And so now, putting all of this together, we now get a better feel for the impact of Jesus' question. Look at verse 44 once again which I'm going to embellish just a little bit to make the point. Look at verse 44. David thus calls him the Messiah, Lord. So how is he, the Messiah, also his son, in other words, if the Messiah is to be a descendant, a son of David, then why would he also call him Lord? Remember, in that time and in that culture, there was no way a father, or a patriarch, would ever address his son or a descendant as Lord. And so Jesus is asking them, how can this be? He leaves the question hanging, and he's met with absolute silence. Jesus doesn't need to say anything else because he knows the Jewish leaders are not stupid. It's dawning on them, and they are starting to realize that they have no other answer than to acknowledge what Jesus has been saying about himself all along. The only way King David would address his descendant as Lord is if that descendant was going to be far greater than King David himself. And the only way that could happen is if the coming Messiah was more than a mere man. He would have to be a divine Messiah, which is exactly what Jesus has been telling them all along. And if this was not convincing enough for them, this truth is further emphasized within the wording of Psalm 110 itself, that the Messiah will sit at the right hand of God until his enemies are made a footstool under his feet. Now, the right hand of God, you must understand, represents God's rule and authority. And to be exalted, to sit in that awesome place of power and honor, meant that the Messiah would share in the royal majesty of God himself. Jesus is showing them in this psalm that the Messiah cannot possibly be a mere man. He is not just a great human leader. He is not just a great human teacher. He is not just a great human anything. No, the Messiah will sit at the right hand of God, and therefore he must be both man and deity. How else would he get there? He must be as Jesus has been proclaiming himself to be all along the very Son of God. Now, can you imagine what it must have been like at that moment when the Pharisees began to realize that they were absolutely stumped? They were probably looking around at each other, hoping that one of the other scribes would, would answer. But again, as Matthew tells us in his account of this same incident, incident, incident no one was able to answer him a word. This is the significance of what Psalm 110 is saying. And it's probably why this psalm is quoted in the New Testament more than 20 times. It's it's quoted more than any other. The disciples knew that the truth found in Psalm 110 was that important. They knew that the truth about Jesus was something they had to get absolutely right. And the reason they had to get this right was because they knew that Jesus alone had the words of eternal life. There was nowhere else to go, no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. This is what the Bible teaches over and over throughout the Old Testament and into the New. The Bible speaks of Jesus, the Messiah, God's only Son, who was sent into the world so that he could suffer and die on a cross as a substitute for us, that he could save his people by dying for their sins. And unless you turn from your sin... And turn to Jesus, the Son of God, believing and putting your trust in Him as your Savior and Lord, you will perish to eternal punishment in an everlasting hell as a consequence of your unrepentant sin. The stakes are that high, folks. Make no mistake about it. Do not be deceived. Your sin is really that bad we must never sugarcoat sin to make it anything less than it is. The Bible teaches that the punishment for our sin is death. Now, the unbelieving world may have a hard time understanding this because they don't realize that when we sin, our offense is not just against another person or against some arbitrary moral code of ethics. What most don't realize is that as a created being made in the image of God, when we sin, our sin is against God himself. And so what you and I might dismiss as a minor offense is in reality a sin committed against an infinitely holy, perfect, righteous, just God. And therefore our sin is infinitely bad and deserving of an infinite punishment. And this is why Jesus cannot be just a mortal man, but he must be God in the flesh so that the sacrifice of his perfect life could be a sufficient payment for our sins. Because only an infinite, perfectly holy Son of God could pay by his death the infinite debt we owed for our sin against God. This is why we have to get Jesus right. It's not good enough just to be a morally good person, to try our best and hope everything will work out in the end. Neither will invoking the name of just any old Jesus save you. A Mormon Jesus will not save you. A Jehovah's Witness Jesus will not save you because they preach a different Jesus. And I'm sorry if that offends you, but eternity is at stake. The difference between heaven and hell is at stake. Our eternal souls are at stake. And so we must get Jesus right. And Jesus knows this as well. So in the last hours of his life, he continues to reach out to even his most ardent enemies to warn them to convince them from the Scriptures, to entreat them and to see, to see Him for who He truly is, their Messiah, the Son of God, and the Son of David. But sadly, the religious leaders, in particular the scribes, refuse to believe in their long-awaited Messiah, even though He is standing right before them. They've got Jesus all wrong. And because they got Jesus wrong, the very expression of their religious activities has become warped. So Jesus warns the people, do not become like the scribes. Look at verse 45. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus rebukes the religious leaders known as the scribes in front of all the people because there is a warning in this. When you get Jesus wrong, even your religion can become a wicked, evil thing. Now, The scribes in Jesus' day, well, they were, they were well-educated men, men. They studied and became experts at the law. They were the ones responsible to accurately copy the Old Testament scriptures, ensuring that the copies that we have today were accurate down to the very letter. They wrote commentaries on it, And they were looked to when interpretation of the Scripture was needed. However, the scribes also went beyond just interpreting and keeping the law. To their eternal shame, they also added many man-made traditions to what God had said. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus accuses them of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. The scribes were also condemned by Jesus, for being prideful hypocrites who abused their authority. They were all about appearance, trying to look good in front of other people in their fancy robes while on the inside they were spiritually dead. They enjoyed all the attention, being fawned over and given special privileges, the best seats and the places of honor, but rather than use their position of privilege and power to help others, they abused their authority, taking advantage of the weak, devouring widows' houses." In their hubris, they were all about their own self-image, even using long, sacred acts of prayer, not to be heard by God, but to try and appear more spiritual than they actually were. Although they studied and knew the scriptures and were keepers of the law, they had lost sight of the God who was contained in the scriptures and the law. For they were more concerned with the outward appearance and the external benefits of their religion than they were with the inner heart and soul of their worship of God. They had become the focus of their own worship, and God was simply a means to their selfish end. And Jesus condemned them as hypocrites, deserving a greater condemnation, a special place in hell, if you were, and rightly so. My brothers and sisters, we need to understand that this is not just a warning for first century scribes. It is a warning that we in the 21st century church need to hear and to heed as well. Because we can and so often do the same thing today, don't we? The danger of hypocrisy is a universal problem. It might interest you to know that the word hypocrite comes from the Greek word that means an actor or a stage player. Hypocrisy is putting on an act, trying to be something that you're not. And I'm not saying that any of us here are as guilty as the scribes. I can honestly say that there is no one that I know of in our church that even comes close. But like any other sin, hypocrisy can manifest itself in different forms and degrees. And I think every one of us, at some point in our lives or another, has tried to put on a pretense, a better version of ourselves, an act that makes us appear more spiritual, because we don't want to be exposed for the sinners that we truly are. Now, the interesting thing about hypocrisy is that we can usually see and smell the hypocrite from a mile away, can't we? Jesus gives us the ridiculous example of a hypocrite in Matthew 7 when he says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now the image of a person walking around unaware that there is a log in his eye is both absurd and funny at the same time. But isn't that the point? The hypocrite is a ridiculous character of a person, an actor. More often than not, everyone around him recognizes it except for the hypocrite himself. And this is the reason why it is so important for us to bring this to our attention this morning. It's because hypocrisy is a sin that over time, if allowed to fester and grow, desensitizes a person's self-awareness. Hypocrisy desensitizes a person's self-awareness. The reason the person is walking around with a log in his eye is that he no longer knows that it's even there. The longer the hypocrite is allowed to wallow in his sin, the harder it is to break him out of it because he won't or can't admit that he has a problem. And this is why God has given to us the church, isn't it? Our brothers and sisters in Christ who love us enough to come alongside us and gently and in love tell us, hey, brother, there's a log in your eye. Now, the hypocrite, he or she, may actually realize deep down they have a problem. But over time, the line that separates the actor and the true person becomes harder and harder to differentiate. It's harder to separate the hypocrite, the actor, from the true person. And when this happens it becomes harder and harder to admit and to reject the hypocrisy because it requires an admission that he's been acting all along, that he's been a fake all this time. His problem, his weakness, his naked soul will be exposed for all to see. And for the hypocrite, this kind of exposure is often worse than death itself. And so, like the scribes and the Pharisees who would rather sacrifice their souls than admit their need for Jesus, the hypocrite continues to build up the act. He continues to hide, to try to convince the watching world, to convince himself and to convince even God that all his good works, his long prayers, his religious knowledge, his fancy robes, his ability to interpret the scriptures, his tithes and his offerings, that somehow all these things have him covered that he's all good with the world, that he's all good with himself, and that he's all good even with God. But truth be told, this is the worst thing about hypocrisy because it makes you think that you're okay when you're not. There is a log in your eye, and you don't even know it. But as long as you think you're fine, you will never seek the only remedy for your soul's sickness. And that remedy is the same for every sin. Jesus Christ himself. Jesus came to earth to seek and to save the lost. He came to save the sinner, not those who thought they were all good. This is why you would always find Jesus eating and drinking with the outcasts, the prostitutes, and the tax collectors rather than with the self-righteous religious leaders. For as he says in Luke 5, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Brothers and sisters, please, please hear this. Jesus sees you for who you truly are. He sees through your act. He knows your secret weaknesses. He knows your secret sin. And he loves you. And he accepts you in spite of it all. So stop with the act. Remove the mask. Admit and repent of your sins so that you can be healed by the love and the grace and the forgiveness of your Messiah. Aren't you tired? Aren't you tired of hiding anyway? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, says your Savior. You can be your true self, and Jesus will not reject you. He will receive you, and he will forgive you, and he will heal you when you turn to him. He received the prodigal son, though he squandered his inheritance. He received the immoral woman, though she was caught in adultery. He received Peter, though he denied Jesus three times. He received the thief on the cross, though he was being punished for his crimes. He received even Saul of Tarsus though he persecuted the church, the very bride of Jesus. He received and he forgave every one of these people because they came to him in their hour of desperation with repentant faith. And Jesus healed them, and he gave them new life. And he will receive and he will forgive you as well when you come to him with the same faith. Now think for a moment about the desperation of each of these people, each of them lost in their sin and crying out to God. Are you desperate enough this morning to do the same? Then take off your mask and stop the act. But guess what? after you take off that first mask and let Jesus deal with your hidden sin, guess what you'll find? Yep, another mask. And when you take off that mask and Jesus deals with that sin, guess what you'll find? Another mask. And another mask after that, and when you finally take off that last mask, what do you find? Makeup. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, this is a process called sanctification. Sanctification a process in which we deal with our sin layer by layer as we're made aware of it. Take the log out of your eye, taking it out of our eyes so that slowly but surely we are able to see life as God meant us to see it, not hiding behind masks but removing them so that the light of our Messiah can dispel our darkness. So my encouragement to you this morning is let go of your pride. Stop hiding behind the mask of hypocrisy. Turn to Jesus. Put your faith in him, believing that he loves you and will forgive your sin when you repent of it so that ultimately you may find healing for your wounded soul and in doing so, find life in Jesus' name. For isn't that why Jesus came to earth? To seek and to save the lost. At the end of the book of John, the apostle uh, sums up why he wrote that entire gospel. And he says this, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is Jesus, our Messiah, the Son of David and the Son of God and we must get him right. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for your grace and your mercy to us, Lord. We thank you, Father, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that you did not wait for us, Lord, to get our acts together, but you chose to send your son to die for our sins while we were still sinners. Help us, Lord, to understand this. Help us, God, to see Jesus for who he truly is, a savior who saves his people from their sins. And help us, I pray, by your Holy Spirit to take off our masks, to let down our pride, And to give to you, Lord, our whole selves. Admitting to you, Lord, that we need you. We are desperate for you. Please help us to do this, Lord. We thank you. We praise you. We love you. We look forward to now coming to your table. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.